Hello, everyone. This is Belinda Carr, and you're listening to my podcast on building products and technology. As we know, the construction industry is ripe for automation and disruption. It has been reliant on manual labor and outdated tech for far too long, which has led to lagging productivity. Every week, I chat with a company that is exploring ways to tackle these issues. Today, I'm speaking with Christine Williamson, building scientist and the brains behind Building Science Fight Club. Thanks for joining us, Christine. Thank you. Thanks. It's nice to nice to be chatting with you. You are probably one of the most famous interviewees I've had so far. So <laughs> it is it's an honor to speak with you. Oh, thank um, you. Instagram famous. It's not Instagram. real fame. <laughs> <laughs> so Instagram famous because you run this incredible page called Building Science Fight Club or BSFC for people who haven't want to Google it. Um, how did you get started with this page and what do you try to do on it? Well, it's really, so it's an Instagram account that I run personally. There's no staff. It's just me. My background is in architecture, but pretty early in my career, I took a real interest in uh, construction and particularly energy efficient design and to, to, to make any progress in real energy efficiency gains, you really do have to know a lot about construction. And I was spending a lot of time learning on big construction sites, big and small. And that was really pretty different from the path that a lot of my classmates from architecture school took. And um, so one once when my I have a, a a cousin. She's a cousin, but kind of a niece because she's younger. She was visiting me from um, from Prague, and she got me signed up on on Instagram. And I thought, hey, this this is kind of neat. This might be a neat way of sharing information with my classmates from architecture school and giving them the benefit of some field experience without them actually being in the field. So I would take some photos, you know, snapshot at a, at a job site or something, and I would draw on it. Uh, and then in the caption, I would describe the technical principle at play in whatever it was that I'd, I'd photographed. And it became this really low stress, easy way of communicating and learning for people who have a background in architecture like me, but not the same kind of field experience. A theoretical background and not a job site background. Correct. Correct. And, and I mean, really when you, when you take a more traditional path in architecture, you're working at an architecture firm and even working on real projects and big projects, the majority of your time is spent in an office, not on a construction site and budgets are very tight and it's hard to acquire those practical skills. So a lot of times you're drawing things that you have not seen in real life. And so it's, it's difficult to get that experience. It takes a very long time for architects and architects in training to make that connection. So and I, completely I, I saw agree a way to what, make that faster. Yeah. And I, I completely agree with you. And that it's not the fault of the architect. No, no. No, not at all. But at the same time, that leads to this reputation of architects being disconnected from reality. Yes. People, yeah. I have a brother-in-law who's a GC, and he <laughs> makes a lot of jokes about architects, like designing <laughs> things up in the clouds and not realizing how things, what the reality of a job site, the dirtiness of it, the inaccuracies, and people trying to solve problems like on the fly. That's, exactly. Yeah, and that architects are missing that side of it. And it's it's not their fault, it's the nature of the business. Yeah, it's also very difficult when you're on a real a job site. So so the 
model of the profession, the profession is modeled on apprenticeship, learning through apprenticeship. So even though you have this formal education, the expectation is that you're you're a lifelong learner and you learn on the job. The issue with that is that that is incompatible with a lot of how our culture expects young professionals to act. And it can be extremely difficult to acquire knowledge on a job site from in front of your boss, in front of your clients, and talking to people who you may have a bit of an adversarial relationship with. And, and, and I don't mean an unhealth, like an unhealthy adversarial relationship, but the role of the architect and the role of the contractor when the when a when a job is is going, is is underway, is a little bit collaborative, but it's also adversarial. Yes. And they're 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 designed on purpose to be a check on each other. So it's it, it's important to have a good relationship and to learn from each other, but asking a question of a general contractor or a subcontractor should be met with, or their answers should be met with some skepticism. That's fair too. Yeah. And it's anyway, building science fight club gives connects. It, it, I view it not just as my account, but as the a as learning. a community, yeah, community to learning. connect people to be able to ask these questions. It's I know it's sort of a cheesy term, but in a safe space, so that they're not having this conversation and you're not a, being judged for not yeah, knowing something. And in a high stakes, fast paced job sites in front of an audience, you're, you're having this conversation among peers and you can have it. I post every week on Saturday mornings. So you can have this conversation when you're still in your pajamas, uh, at your breakfast table, not, uh, not on a, on a construction site in front of your boss or a client where you're trying to save face and, do your job and kind of be in charge. Architects mm-hmm. are supposed to be in charge when they're, when they're on a job site and that there's a lot of pressure. It's very hard to learn in that um, circumstance. So you mentioned earlier that building science fight club started as a low stress, easy way <laughs> to share knowledge about building science in the construction industry. But I know the effort it takes to produce content and share it out there and have a deadline and stick to it on a weekly basis. That's not low stress. I think people (laughs) probably underestimate the amount of time that goes into every single post because you have to be as concise as you possibly can. You have to convey a very complex topic in very few words and in and in, with such clarity that there allows no no room for error because if you if you are unclear about a single word people are going <laughs> to jump on you in the comments they do they do i mean i know you're you're uh, i think your primary medium is youtube and i yes, think the I culture think. of youtube is a little bit different than the culture of instagram which is um not quite as confrontational but um but yeah absolutely it's it's very difficult to do that and it takes a long time each this is now a it's a it's a joy and a hobby still but it is a part-time job in terms of time and, and effort um the when it started, when I started to really invest in it, it was kind of a coincidence. We talked earlier before the recording started about both being immigrants 
And there was a, a period after I, I've been in the United States, I'm Canadian originally, and I've been in the United States for a long time. But when I finally was eligible after getting married to apply for a green card, I knew that there was going to be a period of time where I wouldn't be able to have paid employment. And so I took that time. I thought, okay, what am I going to do? I've always worked, right? So what am I going to do with my time when I, I don't have a, have a job for a while? And the, I'd been posting on Instagram and I thought, you know, I really enjoy teaching. What if I treated teaching as though it were my job? And I personally get a lot out of teaching. There's, there's just the satisfaction of, of being a good teacher, but from a technical perspective, I, when you learn a concept well enough to teach it, you learn it quite a bit differently. It's actually, I liken it to drawing in, in, um, architect in architecture school, a lot of young architects learn very quickly or architects in training that you think you understand something until you have to draw oh, it. And then so you realize, so. Oh my goodness. I, it's like, I've never seen this thing before. You, there's just so many more elements that become clear when you have to take a disciplined approach and, and put it, put you know, pencil to paper. And the same is true of teaching. When you're teaching something, you understand it in a different way. And uh, that was good for me just as a nerd and for personal interest in my practice as a building scientist. But also I spent much of my career as a building scientist and a consultant communicating technical concepts to people who were professionals, yes, but not all professionals with the same understanding and experience and same with our clients. So I thought that I'd take this time to really invest in teaching and, and use the, you know, that benefits me as well. And it's certainly, that's definitely still the primary benefit for me, but the, there are all kinds of secondary benefits to spending this amount of time on an account. There's um, a level of popularity in the or recognition, I think in the industry, which certainly hasn't hurt my career. Um, it's not really a good marketing thing. Cause it's, I do this for professionals. So some people are like, Oh, it must give you so much business. And I, uh, it, I, that's not, it doesn't really help that way. Uh, mostly I have to tell a lot of people I'm a solo practitioner. I don't, I don't need that much business. It's, it's one person. I can, I have lots of stuff to keep me busy, but certainly being well-known in the industry has, um, connected me to interesting work that I probably otherwise wouldn't be connected to. And it's allowed me to teach formally in other capacities. So I sell, I sell a course online for, that's a paid course and it's a more disciplined, you know, these Instagram posts are very they're very short, yeah. but for somebody who wants, for a professional, an architect or a builder who wants to invest in understanding building science in a more disciplined and comprehensive way, I have a course, it's about 10 hours, it's on demand. And I developed that also in this, in this absence from paid employment and, and Instagram was a way of sort of test driving some of that material and seeing how people learned. And we're, by, by listening to people's questions, I'd, I'd have a better and more complete sense of what their hangups were and what their prior experience was. And it meant that I was able to come up with this curriculum and teach, I think, in a much more practical and useful way. So I think when people take my course, the paid course, it is immediately helpful for their day-to-day -day practice, which is, um, which is really nice and satisfying. So it was this happy accident, courtesy of U.S. Customs and Border Patrol. <laughs> not, uh, I, I would not have come up with it myself. And then, of course, my cousin who signed me up for Instagram all those years ago. Uh, I, there's so much that you've said that 
I agree with and kind of relate I relate to. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, it's just mm-hmm. like when you talk about education, when you learn, when I learn something, it's, yeah, I retain that information a little bit, but when it comes to explaining it in words in seven minutes to eight minutes, it it's like it's burned in my brain, somewhere in my brain. And yeah. So whenever someone asks me a question about a video, I cannot watch my old stuff. It's just, I just it makes me cringe to watch my old videos. I don't do it. But if someone asks me a topic about spray foam insulation or something that I made a year ago, it's still back there somewhere oh, because I spent so many hours writing that script, oh, yeah. editing it and publishing it. Like it, you, Your brain automatically retains it a lot more and you're able to convey that information a lot better rather than if you had just read an article about it and you thought you understood what spray foam was about. Um, yeah, you also have to go through the discipline of kind of um, being a little bit more thorough about your sources of information when you're teaching it to other people. So I could ask a colleague, if there's something I don't understand, I can just ask a colleague and I trust this colleague's opinion and it's good enough for the purposes of whatever I'm doing. Well, that's a different threshold than teaching it and publishing it for a whole bunch of people. So what might be good for a, you know, a casual conversation or to make a quick decision on what am I going to use on this particular job site? That's different. If you're, if I'm researching something for Instagram or you for YouTube, you're going to say, okay, well, that's the best argument in favor of something. What's the best argument against it? And, and am I able to essentially, if questioned, can I back up what I'm saying? Yeah. And can I share where the, where the source of the information is? Some of it's my own experience. I mean, a lot of it is my own experience in, especially the stuff with respect to construction, a a lot of that is experience-based. It's not, um, it's, it's not uh, a principle of physics, but, uh, but some of the other stuff that's, it's, you need to be able to point people in the right direction if they want additional information, and it it's a real discipline to go through that each so time. My my experience is different than yours in that aspect because I come, I kind of went down the BIM route where I was mm-hmm. BIM director for an architecture firm. So I had no idea what building science was about. I was just mm-hmm. in, interested in materials and how they're made and like break it down to its elemental form. What are the the compounds that go into this make, making this particular uh, building material and how do you make it? What is its lifespan? Um, so me coming into this field of building science and material science was completely by chance, but it was just my interest or passion in it. And I don't want to bring this up, but that video on shipping containers was kind of... The, I know, it was, that's how I learned about yeah. you. <laughs> it was kind of the trigger because I was making videos on Dynamo and Python up till then. But when I made this video on building science, uh, on, on shipping containers, it took me down. After I received all this feedback, I said, okay, I'm not crazy shipping containers aren't logical and I kind of outlined it pretty well in the video but all these comments made me say okay I I have to back up my arguments a little bit better so in my subsequent videos I kind of talk about it more scientifically more with sources I back up my my positions on certain uh, building products or building technology and and it was it was a good learning experience because you can't like you said you can't just talk about a particular topic because someone said something about it. It teaches you to do your research, look at the pros and cons of everything and present it in a really legitimate way. Um, like things right. about dew point, things that I just hadn't heard about before yeah. that shipping container video. And now when if people ask me about shipping containers, I'm able to present it in a little more 
educated manner than I might have in that in that YouTube video. Yeah, the the shipping container one is it's such a it's an ongoing joke in the <laughs> industry because it's it's like modular construction, which we we've talked about before you and I. Uh, it's you know the idea that won't die. People are so enthralled with shipping containers and it's like telling them their baby is ugly to to present challenges to the to the idea. And I think it's what people do is they get attached to an idea or an, in, in the case of shipping containers, I think it's not just an idea, but an aesthetic. And then they work backwards from there in trying to justify it as opposed to having a problem and letting a solution to that problem emerge more organically. And I, I really think this is the shipping containers and, and some forms of modular attachment to modular construction work in that way. It's people, people like the idea of these building blocks and standardization and technology. And, uh, and they've, they've got a point to a lot of this stuff, but they want to then uh, reverse engineer and make the problem fit the solution that they've already arrived at rather than, than the other way around. And shipping containers is just such a great example of that where, uh, particularly the aesthetic part emerges where you can, you can actually, you, you can make shipping container construction work. And the easiest way to make it work is to insulate on the exterior. You mentioned dew point and you mentioned, I prefer to teach in terms of condensation control. And when you've got a metal building in particular, uh, the easiest way to, and I mean, any building really, the easiest way to control condensation is to insulate on the exterior of the, of the structure and do water management on the exterior of the structure as well. And uh, so you could do that with shipping containers, but the second you do that, what happens to your shipping container aesthetic? You well, it no longer looks like a shipping container and people are like, well, I don't want to do that. So they, they want to use spray foam on the, on the interior and, um, and you can do that too, but there are some real challenges with that as well. And you'll get differential, you're going to have to contend with differential expansion from, from heat, the, a metal building, as you might imagine, can get extremely hot. You you've done all this stuff before and anybody listening to this, who hasn't listened to your series of videos on shipping containers would be, uh, entertained and, uh, and informed by doing so. But, um, yeah, it's uh, you doing doing spray foam on the inside doesn't doesn't uh, solve every problem. Although you you could make that work too. It's just very difficult. I actually got a call, I think about two or three weeks ago, from someone who had done that, who had who had made a shipping container house, spray foam on the interior, and uh, the house in question was in uh, in Texas, and they were getting leaks at their windows because the windows were warping because it was exceeding the uh, in-service temperature uh, limit of the windows. So the windows were warping, which pulled the sealants between the sealant and the shipping container, and they were leaking even, and, and then now they were not just warping, but now the windows are, are leaking. Um, you can also sometimes, if you, if you, this is true with other metal buildings that you spray foam up against as well, but you, if you spray the foam right up against it, the differential thermal expansion 
can make these very loud popping sounds as the spray foam debonds from from the metal. And uh, so if I were going to do that, if I were really intent on, or if I had a free shipping container and I need, I had the shipping container at location and a, and a need to provide housing, um, I'd, I'd put a drainage mat down and essentially drain the shipping container at the at the base somehow and then spray the foam against the the drainage mat. Anyway, there's there's all kinds of ways that you could make this stuff work, but uh, at a certain point it's is um, it worth it? That's I know, yeah. I know, right? I so mean, I, it's also like what again, what problem are you solving? Solve exactly. We can make we can make homes a simple home out of dimensional lumber pretty quickly and pretty inexpensively if we, if we want to. So what's the, what's the problem we're really trying to solve and, and is the solution, does it fit the, the problem that we have? So I spoke to um, a company in California, I'm not going to say who, but they convert shipping containers into homes. And the person who worked there told me that they stripped the containers of the corrugated metal, use proper insulation, sheathing, and then put the corrugation on the sheathing as aesthetics. Like they, yeah, because people actually, want that. Want the they want that. Because... I think that's actually kind of a great, <laughs> a great way of doing it. If you can recycle the metal and make it a, essentially a watershedding cladding, like that's that's great. That works. But again, at, at a certain point, how are you? What are you? What are you, you achieving? You work backwards yeah. from the aesthetic you want to the problem you wanna you wanna solve. So the um, problem there's all kinds of modular housing that that works. Yeah. But the applications end up being often quite a bit more limited than its advocates often are ready to admit. So you've been in the North American industry a lot longer than than I have, and you've seen these cycles of hype when it comes to the, mod, the modular construction industry. It's gonna solve, solve the homelessness problem. It's gonna solve the problem of affordability. It's, it's gonna solve the problem of material shortages. All these, is all these issues that come up every couple of years and shipping containers or modular construction prefab is the solution to it. That's the way it's marketed. You probably have a lot of frustration with that kind of marketing because like you said, it's, um, it's counterintuitive because we can have a lot more intelligent solution to fit the problem rather than pick up this off the shelf and force, like make it fit the problem at hand rather than come up with something a little more creative. Yeah. I think some of it is, um, I, a desire to, you know, that expression, if you, if you have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. I know I haven't I think, that before. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a common one. It's one of my favorites. Also it's construction related, but um, I think there's a, a lot of that going on in this industry, but I see it in other areas of life as well. Um, a particular industry will have an area of expertise and they want to make, they want the solution to a particular problem like, uh, like housing and homelessness. They, they want to find a solution to that within their industry when, uh, at best, only part of the solution to that issue is is within their industry, and I think our housing shortage problem is far greater than just a construction thing. That's what you're trying to say. It's like a social economic problem. It's a financial right, issue. Right. But I mean, there's a, an element of construction. Yes, absolutely, but it's it, not the entire thing. Exactly, and it's and in some senses, it's it's 
they want the problem to be easier because if this were only a scientific problem or and a question of resources, like, okay, let's just build a few factories and start churning out these, these uh, modular houses and, and there you go. And unfortunately that's not, I mean, if we, let's actually take, let's, let's take that thought experiment a little bit further. Let's assume that we could do that. Like, where are you going to put these things? How are you going to get them to where you need them? And uh, suddenly a lot of land is it going to sit on? Exactly. And also like we sometimes we forget, I think, or people outside of this industry forget the problem with U.S. construction is not that we have uh, we do things. Uh, we haven't found a cheap enough way of building. I mean, we can build stuff really inexpensively in this country. I mean, really, really, I mean, we've kind of perfected how to build inexpensively in North America. Um, and I, I liken this to, or I like to point out to people that we already have modular housing. There's, I mean, if you go to like Clayton homes and you say, okay, I want to, I want to buy a mobile home, a new one. You can buy repurposed ones as well, but a new mobile home, a pretty nice one, about a thousand square feet. You can get one for installed, delivered to your site, connected to utilities with the skirting installed for $50,000, $75,000. I mean, and these are pretty, these are brand new ones and they're pretty nice. So if that's roughly 50 or 75 dollars a square foot. I, I don't think the problem is that we can't build inexpensively enough. I think there's more to it than that. And if you look at some of the, the modular proposals that people come up with, oftentimes the cost is way, way, way more than that and more than the cost of standard construction. So I was looking at, um, I think it just came out. I think it's relatively new, but Dwell Magazine has a um, has an ADU and um, what what is that uh, accessory Dwelling, dwelling unit. unit? That's one of those acronyms that's yes. become the word for me. I forget what it stands for, but um, they have one that you can buy and it's beautiful and it's four hundred thousand dollars and it's I, I can't remember the square footage like twelve hundred square feet a thousand square feet but it's beautifully done it's really really nice and i think actually probably in some places it really does make sense if you've got the room for it and you have a particular aesthetic and that really might make make sense but i mean it's pretty clear that that does not make sense for a whole a whole lot of people uh and anyway it's yeah. it's what's advertised ends up being a little bit uh, different than the okay, we're going to rendering take away our magic wand, and <laughs> our architects and engineers are going to solve the problem of costs uh, of housing costs, housing. rising housing yeah. costs. So a, a while back, I made a video on poverty appropriation. It's this term that I came across. Huh. It's very interesting, and it's exactly what you just explained. Trailer homes are available, they're affordable, you can buy them, but there's a stigma associated with it. People like to call, certain people point fingers at those living in trailer homes, call them trailer park trash. At the same time, they'll turn around and go and advocate for these $400,000 tiny homes or ADUs, which are basically the same principle, just four times the cost. But the people yeah. living in those are praised, they're they there's like people write articles about them. They are showcased on social media because those are sexy. Those are trendy homes. While people making the logical decision buying an affordable trailer home are the ones shunned. So <laughs> yeah, 
It's a very, a very interesting argument. And I think there's a lot of uh, truth to that. It's exactly what you just talked about. Yeah. yeah, it's um I, I think it sometimes it reveals people's uh excuse excuse me, that's um that's the director of security at Building Science Fight Club here, Pancake, <laughs> making sure that we're safe from the UPS man. <laughs> but um who's <laughs> um, about to make a delivery. So we're gonna hear a few more of those. But yeah, I think um I think that happens a lot where there's a lot of unacknowledged preferences having to do with people's aesthetic preferences and their aesthetic ideas of how people should live and um, what other people's preferences, aesthetic preferences should be. So I think you mentioned icky, like there's an ick factor to certain types of housing from certain people that anyway, it's, um, and I think also it's a lot of this is by people who don't know a whole lot about the industry that they want to disrupt. So you mentioned that at the beginning that there is a lot of opportunity for innovation in the building industry. There's tons of opportunity for it. But I I think a lot of times what we see is people who want to disrupt an industry that they don't know enough about to come up with productive ways of disrupting it. And uh, and, and also there's a, a bias or a desire to come up with the next big idea that totally changes things when more often than not, we make smaller, more incremental changes. And those incremental changes add up to a lot, but they're not quite they're as not sexy. sexy. As, yeah. Yeah. They don't, they don't generate the attention grabbing headlines. Exactly. Exactly. So there's, there's, so there's a lot of speaking of modular construction. I mean, there's tons of innovation in that industry, in the construction industry, having to do with modularity, beginning with the invention of dimensional lumber. I mean, that's sort of the original modular design. We, we don't fell trees and build houses out of the trees from the lot that we felled. Um, this isn't, you know, pioneer time anymore. We have dimensional lumber and we, um, we ship just the, the the frame to the site, and um, and and we're getting advances in that too. There's, I think it's called Ready Frame. There's, a, yes, and, a, and a, uh-huh. I'm not sure. I've there's other that. companies probably that do this too. So, you submit your plans to them, and they will pre-cut all of your lumber, and you're not like each each piece of, of lumber is stamped and it has a specific location. So like the, the, like that, that stud wall, like those pieces of wood are destined for that wall and that wall only. And it really, really minimizes construction waste. It's fantastic. So stuff like that, where there's, um, you know, there's, that's really innovative and really great and and really neat, but it doesn't look like anything Mm -hmm. different when the house is finished. It looks, looks the same. Um, pre-manufactured trusses, uh, and stairs and windows. There was not that long ago, we, we would build stairs on site and we would build windows on site. Um, we don't, we don't really do that anymore. So those are I guess, pieces, panels that end up being shipped to job sites that uh, introduce us to the concept of modularity and allow us with, uh, allow us a tremendous amount of flexibility in what we, what we build really inexpensively. Um, But I think in terms of big type modularity, the, the entire house or, or large portions of the house, probably the United States and North America more broadly is not a very good candidate for that type of innovation 
So earlier because when you were talking, you were saying people say Sweden has figured out how to. Um, yeah, where their build season is really short. Like in, and and they've got. I forgive me for noticing, but Sweden is full of Swedes, and they have a different culture, a different labor market, a different um, a different geography. And I, I'm not an expert in Sweden. Different I'm just using that as an example. Yeah. People people say it to me all the time, and. Uh, and maybe they do know the Swedish market. And, and there's certainly lots that we can learn if, in North America from European construction, but it's not a one-to-one translation. Yes. The, the way they build in, I, I know that you recently went to Switzerland and I have uh, family there. I've been going to Switzerland a long time. So the, they build really differently in Switzerland and the, and then they have a very different culture around labor and construction and trying to apply that to North American construction, I think is just not, um, it's not, it's, it's an unfair comparison. It, it really is, but that's not to say we can't learn a lot from, from how people do things and different materials. And, um, there's a concept I really, I really liked when I learned about it. It's from economics. I don't, I'm not an economist. I'm not any kind of expert at this, but the term is path dependency. And it uh, describes the cost of doing something differently than what we're doing now. And that even though, so I can suggest to a client, I have suggested to a client, any, any of the professionals that are listening to your podcast can, can relate to this, I'm certain. They can suggest to something that's objectively better and it isn't more expensive than what they've been doing. And it might even be less expensive, but it's hard to get the client or the customer or whoever to switch the first time because they are dependent on the way that they've been doing it. And there's a real cost to figuring out how to do this new thing for the first time. And once they do it, once you do it once, the you've, you've broken the past dependency and you can uh, develop a new network and a, and a new way of doing something. But there's, um, I like that term because it captures the cost of changing something so, that isn't immediately noticeable in like the bid price. Yes. Uh, sometimes something can be not very expensive and everybody can be willing, but it's like, how do I actually incorporate that into my workflow? And, um, and so that can be a real barrier a to entry. It's not, I'm sorry, um, it's not a material cost. Like you said, it's not in the Correct. bid price, but it's or in even the education. Labor. Or in the, oh, okay. So it's not I in mean, the education of the it, well, Even labor in the swinging a hammer way. Okay. It's more like the... Disruption of unexpected workflow. Yeah, yeah. Like I, as the project manager, now I'm not calling my normal guy yeah. that I always call to do this same thing. I have to call a different person, and uh, I I manage I do B instead of C, uh, and I'm but I'm used to doing B. So I and it, it's it's a. Uh, I think people recognize this. I'm trying to think of an example in your day-to-day life, but it's maybe taking a new uh, route to your job. You commute every day and you're used to taking this one way and you've been told that there's a shortcut and it might save, it might actually either be the same amount of time or it might save you five minutes. Um, But how often, like sometimes you're like, you know what, I'm really not willing to exert the mental effort to try something new for a five minute savings. I'm just going to do what I've always done and, and zone out and listen to music in the car or a podcast in the car rather than try to be more efficient. 
And I, I think when we do this in industry, it can add up to, to big inefficiencies. But the trick is to figure out the difference between stuff like this and stuff that is unproductive and silly and, and not applicable for our jobs at all. Um, for example... There's, I mean, the, like the giant changes, like yeah. modular construction, like getting people to switch right now from site built construction to let's all build stuff in factories is, um, is, is a pretty, pretty enormous change with yeah. lots and lots and lots of probably unintended consequences, but, um, making small incremental changes, like say going from I'm conventional framing to using a service like ready, ready frame, mm -hmm. like it doesn't, it doesn't. I don't think it really costs you extra money to do this, but now you got to call someone else. You got to figure out how to work it out. There's so much value to what you've said. I mean, we can extract 10 different points from <laughs> your, from your, from, from everything you explained and just have 10 different podcasts based on that. But I agree with what you're saying. And I've said this in my videos too. Like if there's change in the industry, it's going to come from people in the industry, who know how it works, who know the intricacies of it, who know the cultural differences, who know how things work here. It's not going to come from someone in the automotive industry or the tech field or Silicon Valley or something. They, I understand the value of a new perspective, new fresh oh, yeah. set of eyes. But it'll be a, it'll be a collaboration, whatever exactly. it is. It'll be a collaboration. And like what you said, it's like. The unsexy things where people try a new set of framing or new like modular stairs, modular uh, like pre-made windows or something like that, all that adds up to a big change. But as humans, we don't we don't want to see that. We don't. Our brains want to see the big the big outcome. We oh, want you're so, we want the nice you're rendering. So right. We don't we don't so want. Don't tell us um, the small little things. Yeah. yeah, I was at a, I was, so I was at a conference, um, it was pre COVID. Um, and there was a really notable speaker. I won't say his name, but he had a very big, a big job, an important job. And he started his remarks out by showing a photo of like the first assembly, excuse me, the first assembly line for a car. I forget what, like the original Henry Ford factory, something like that, whatever. And then sat next to it, he showed a, a photo of some car manufacturer in Germany, like whatever this super duper high tech factory for making cars. And it was, it was such a stark difference. And, and the point was, look how far we've come in the auto industry. And then the next slide was a photo of a construction site and it was like sepia toned. It was from the olden <laughs> days, you know, and it was a house being built. And then next to it, he showed a house uh, in modern time, which you could tell from the photography. And it was a similar stage of construction from the same angle. And it was about the same size and that kind of stuff. And, and the point was like, look at the innovation in the automotive industry and oh my gosh, we're just so behind in the building industry. And it made me so mad to see that. And it was, it was like a cheap punchline and it's definitely true that there's a lot more innovation that's possible. And I, I can't wait to see where our industry goes. I think particularly, we can talk about this next too, but particularly in the area of indoor air quality and yes. ventilation systems. I mean, we're going to see fantastic 
innovation and improvements to housing in the United States and hopefully around the world. And I'm, I'm very excited for that. So on the one hand, that is true. We still have a, a long way to go. But on the other hand, like it's such a cheap shot at construction. Like there's so much that we've innovated in this industry. And he, he was saying like, oh, these things look alike. They must be the same. And in my head, I was like, yeah, they look alike to people who don't know anything about construction. Like I can, I can point to like a dozen things that are, that's different in the second photo than in the first photo for one dimensional lumber. Like that's a pretty big innovation. And, uh, we've got, we've got, we've got all kinds of things and all kinds of services in our homes that we didn't used to have even 30, 40 years ago. So there's, there's, there's a lot of innovation in our industry, but I mean, again, it might be, I'm sensitive to it. It's a little bit like, um, you know, I can criticize my family, but I'll, if someone outside criticizes it, uh-uh, I'm not having any of it. So uh, maybe I'm a little sensitive to it, but I, I really, I don't like it when people on the outside of something who aren't fully informed or, or don't have, um, aren't committed to the industry from the outside look in as a, as a critic. I, mm-hmm. I and I, I don't like that in general, in other areas of life too. It's really easy in our culture to be dismissive. a critic. Yeah. It's a lot harder to be the innovator and to, and to be in an industry and be solving problems day to day. So before we criticize people that are out there swinging hammers, dealing with real clients and real problems, um, better understand what they do before, before proposing a, a way to make their work obsolete. And everybody does that about someone else's work, right? Like, not about their own work. Yeah. Not right. about their own work. I actually, that was another story. I was, um, I was working right out of college. I was working for a fantastic architect in New York City uh, called Chris Benedict. And she was making uh, really, really, and still does design really, really energy efficient buildings. And she's a very committed libertarian as well. And, and so her philosophy was that any anything we did to save energy had to be financially viable in its own right. So she wouldn't do this. She wouldn't accept subsidies or anything artificial. It was, I'm going to make if it, the efficient design efficiently. And uh, I was brilliant, brilliant woman um, and very principled. I had a, I was just learning so much from her and she was succeeding. She was at the time and still does. She's probably doing it even more now, but building buildings that use 85% less energy for heat and hot water than a typical building for the same cost as standard construction. She's oh awesome. Gosh. Total rock star. Anyway, I went to a college reunion and told somebody what I was doing. And, um, she worked, I won't say what it was, but she worked for a political campaign and said, and was some senior advisor to zones. And she said, well, if we win the election, I'd really like to, um, get, I'd, I'd like to have you come and teach us how to teach the homeless, how to retrofit buildings for energy. And she said it with like such, she just rolled it off like that. And I was like, well, how about we teach homeless people how to do what you do? Um, which is not to say that anything against people yeah. who uh, I, I don't, I, that's not my message in this. Yeah. Like there's no denigration of, of anybody falling on hard times or their level of skill or anything like that. But the idea so that, dismissive that is, oh yeah, someone who doesn't, just the idea that something that requires a lot of effort and understanding is, is just easily transferable. It's just like giving someone like, 
like like, like doing what Chris does is easy yeah. that we can just train anybody to do it and and we can give them a you know um a six hour long class and then every we turn every architect into Chris Benedict and not that well yeah it kind of takes some experience to do this stuff and and some time and um and if and you can and we can bring a lot of people into yeah. this industry and train them I, I I'm committed to doing that but the idea that it's a it's a you know, we just standardize the process and give everybody a, a, a five point plan. And then that now our problem solved. We're good. <laughs> so, but everybody's guess, like that about their own. Yeah. Everybody sees their Some... own industry a little differently than they see other people's industries. I agree. Yeah. Well, to our listeners, I'm, I'm sorry we did so much ranting, but I think the, the, <laughs> what we're trying to get at is that there is so much value to our industry. There's so much innovation already going on. And I know in my intro, I said, yeah, we have lacking productivity because everyone looks at that, the one McKinsey graph that's so shared so widely that says the construction industry has, hasn't done anything, but we have done a lot. And there, like with what you're doing with your building science fight club posts and with the YouTube videos, it's kind of to raise awareness about the innovations in the industry and more appreciation for the construction industry, like not the, my pet peeve is that social media has diluted architecture and construction to just pretty pictures. And it's, it's not helping people understand construction. So I really appreciate what you are doing with the education that you're spreading every single week. You're kind of, you're telling people the unsexy things are important. Yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, I hope to tell very creative and smart people about these things so that they're better equipped to come up with new ways of, of doing stuff themselves. I love, love, love seeing people on Instagram or at conferences or just in professional conversations, take a principle or a concept that they've learned from me or they've learned in part from me because typically we don't learn from a single source. We learn from a lot of sources, but they can take something from me and then apply it to something that they're doing in a way that I absolutely can't and, and never, and could never do there. There's um, a lot of friends and colleagues that are doing such interesting work in the, in the industry right now. I'm so in awe of them. And I, I love being a part of a very small part of, of what they do. And that's my whole idea is, okay, let, let's, let's give people a, a little bit better of a technical foundation so that they can be creative and add their value the to, foundation, to the, yes. not as a limiting factor. Cause that's a, like a lot of times building science is approached like a limiting factor. Like, um, uh, like that I, a lot of people who, who teach it, it's like their finger wagging. Like you can't do this. You can't do that. You can't do this other thing. And I like to look at it the other way and say, okay, what could we do in order to do that thing? And you make the choice to see, okay, well, that's not going to be worth now that I know what's involved in that. That's not going to be worth it, but that's a very different proposition than this finger wagging. No, 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 no. So I want to find out like, how can I say yes to the craziest thing that people come up with? And, and then maybe we dial it back from there. <laughs> I had a, I had a client. I mean, this was really cool. Who was building um, a structure. I, I, I probably can't violate his, um, privacy by describing the project in more detail than that. But he came to me and he said, I want it to last forever. 
So how can I make it last forever? And a lot of clients say that and they don't really mean it. So you have to say this a few times. Like they mean like, I want it to be well-built. I want it to, you know, or maybe they're thinking a couple hundred years or like a college campus. And he was like, no, no, no. I want to know what it would take to make this last forever, like the pyramids forever. And it was a really fun intellectual exercise to figure out, okay, what would we, how would we build this if I'm thinking like forever, forever? So you don't want to use any any steel or anything that corrodes. So it was a I, I ended up pitching a granite foundation with basalt rebar <laughs> and like all, all this cra- a gold roof because gold doesn't react with anything. Oh, it was crazy. And I was pitching it, like I'd drawn it up and I was pitching it in a real meeting. And it was uh it was a funny experience. So afterwards they were like, yeah, we're, we're not going to do that. <laughs> so it's, it's approximately as durable as like a college library, which is really durable. It's very nice, but it's um not, not pyramids. Good for uh, you. You, but, you. That's what they asked. So that's what you delivered. I, well, I like that they asked it and they wanted to know, they wanted to kind of book end the conversation. Like here's how I could build it as cheaply as possible. Uh, if I didn't really care about how long it was going to last and here's what I would do on the, on the crazy side. Um, now let me, let me pick something that's a little bit, that's a better use of resources yes. in, in my estimation. And so it was, it's fun to go through that exercise, but the point is how do you say yes to people? How do you use an understanding of construction and physics to, to say yes. And you, people, they'll, they'll decide on their own, uh, what, what they're going to, where their sweet spot is, but how do you say yes? That's a, that's a more fun. As opposed to like saying, this is what you can't do. You think these are the parameters, find it out. Well, here's how you can do this. Now you choose, do you want to really do this or like shipping containers? Like, okay, here's how you can do this. Is this still worth it to you? And I think we find a lot of times the answer is no, it's not, but sometimes it is. And you know, or, or sometimes some limitations don't apply. Right. Um, Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. So That's it's um, it's good to give people the information and let them apply their own creativity to the to the particular situation. That's a beautiful lesson for anyone who's trying to get into any field of education, whether it's like social media education or people like in colleges. But that's that's a beautiful approach to spreading knowledge and I it's always so. yeah, it's always fun to talk to you, Christine. Thank you so much. That was. That was full of valuable information for the industry and people who want to get into the industry. Um, we're going to have to have you back on the podcast because you have so. <laughs> you've brought up so many important points that deserve more explanation. So whenever you are free, you're always welcome back. Well, thank you, Belinda. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks again, Christine.